Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for today's Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Liz Schlamm, and I will be your host for today's episode titled Nanomedicines and Clinical Therapeutics, Decades of Progress but Still Evolving. With me today are Tamer Elbayumi, Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and Co-Director of Nanomedicine Center of Excellence, Midwestern University, Glendale, whose practice interests are nanomedicine, oncology, and cardiovascular disease, and John Hertig, Associate Professor, Butler University College of Pharmacy, whose practice interests are patient safety and health policy. This nanomedicines podcast is being presented as a follow-up to a Therapeutic Thursdays podcast in June 2022, which introduced nanomedicines. Thank you for joining us today, Tamer and John. Let's get started by talking about a few important nanomedicines in the clinical domain. Tamer, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Liz. So first example for us that it's been in the market for quite a few years is the anti-cancer drug doxorubicin that's been formulated in liposome or more specifically even stealth or pigulated liposomes. And this encapsulation of doxorubicin in liposomes has significantly improved pharmacokinetic profile and half plasma half-life of the formulation going from three hours of the native drug or the unformulated drug all the way up to 60 hours, in addition to improving the safety profile of the drug and reduction of cardiotoxicity side effects typically associated with high doses or accumulated doses of doxorubicin in cancer therapy. The second example that, of course, comes up to our mind from our recent time is basically the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. And for here, we can just go over some basic concepts over here. Basically, for the mRNA COVID vaccine, it contains the code for the part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus spike protein, where the concept is that using the mRNA is better and safer than using the whole virus, of course, and even the DNA for the DNA delivery. Why? Because the mRNA is not infectious and typically doesn't need to be integrated to the whole genome. While if we try to deliver a DNA, it has to go and reach the nucleus and get properly integrated into our DNA. And that's because of simplicity of the mRNA and it doesn't need to be processed directly into cytosol. It became our strategy of choice. The problem with mRNA is a short half-life and it's prone to degradation leading to it disappears within minutes from within the body. So that's why in complexation of that COVID-19 mRNA has been complexed with different lipids and phospholipids, specifically positively charged phospholipids, in order to become resistant to RNA's mediated degradation to help stabilize the entire formulation for the COVID mRNA vaccine. This allowed us to formulate the mRNA in liposomes, and that basically allowed us to form self-assembled virus-sized nanoparticles. Now, with the presence of specific helper phospholipids in these liposomes, they even helped promote the endosomal escape of the nanoparticles or the liposomes, thus releasing the mRNA cargo directly in our cytosol, where the mRNA now gets translated into the antigenic protein and stimulate the effector T cells 
vector T cells will help generate or stimulate the generation of anti-COVID-19 antibody from B cells and starts our immune reaction. And I think John now can give us also his point of view on this subject. Yeah, thank you, Tamer, and thank you, Liz, for the invitation. Just such great examples provided by Tamer. I think to reframe this and to bring people back to the foundation of nanomedicines, there really is a benefit to being small. You know, although quite complex, simply put, the tiny size of these medicines increases surface ratio, and that has a distinct impact on the reactivity of a particular medicine or therapeutic treatment. There are many distinctive attributes associated with each nanomedicine, making their absorption, distribution, efficacy, as well as uh, safety profiles unique. Ultimately, that reduction in particle size are giving some of these specific properties that Tamer's talking about that differentiate nanomedicines from other drug products. Nanoparticle size, the distribution, morphology, as well as surface characteristics, all influence drug delivery, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, as well as the toxicity profiles of nanomedicines and their related drug products. And for us at the bedside, you know, that's going to translate into clinical efficacy as well as safety and tolerability. And that's really important. That's why we're talking about these new therapies being really relatively novel. For example, surface modification can impact the biodistribution of colloidal drugs, which alters their cellular and organ uptake allowing for more selective or even preferential drug targeting, which can be really impactful. By doing that, you can perhaps limit the total dose, but still get an equivalent efficacy or even greater efficacy. And that's really significant. There are particular properties of nanomedicines associated with their nanostale dimensions that can lead to clinical advantages at the bedside. We've been talking a little bit about some of the newer therapies that Tamer described, but paclitaxel protein-bound particles are a type of nanomedicine that are being specifically engineered for use in several oncologic indications. They were developed specifically to overcome hypersensitivity reactions and toxicity that were associated with a previous formulation. What's really Particularly interesting about this is that evidence suggests that this newer nanomedicine-specific stabilized formulation of paclitaxel protein-bound particles facilitates increased penetration of the blood-brain barrier, enabling some really important targeting of brain tumors. So not only are we reducing the toxicity, improving the patient's safety and the safety profile, but we're also now being more and more able to target specific cells of concern. And I'm really excited about that as we move into the future of these therapeutics. So with that, Liz, back to you. Okay, thank you. And yeah, that just brings us to another question about FDA approvals. What are a few key points that pharmacists should know about the challenges of approving nanomedicines? Thank you, Liz. So I think I will start on this point by just addressing a few components that we need to be aware of in terms of the nanomedicine like structure and formulation and manufacturing. So first of all, in terms of properties, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profiles of nanomedicines become generally much more complex, as John mentioned, due to the various properties of nanomedicines, such as the, also the stability, the solubility, the permeability, the porosity, as well as the release properties and the different delayed release properties and profiles that can affect generally the biopharmaceutical efficacy of any incorporated active pharmaceutical ingredient. Then let's take that a little further. Let's talk about actually making these nanopharmaceutical products. Their manufacturing is quite complex because also of their complex structure. Then we need strict control in order to prevent batch-to-batch -batch variation, 
And in order to have consistent encapsulation efficiency and avoid any significant variability in the encapsulation or manufacturing between, for example, different extruder models and different designs of the extruders, for example, that we use for liposomes or for the efficacy of complexation of the active ingredient within a nanocarrier component or a nanoparticle that has to be always optimal and compared to a simple mixed active ingredient that we usually just formulate or incorporate simply in our liquid or solid dosage forms. Thirdly, after that, when we think about analytically, so the standard United States pharmacopoeial characterization assays that we typically use to characterize and analyze our regular or conventional products may not be able to properly assist the full characterization and properties of nanomedicines. Again, due to the unique complexation, encapsulation, and incorporation structure of the nanoparticle that will incorporate and that has the component of the active ingredient inside. In addition, that will make limited scope of these typical characterization assays will encourage us to push further for more advanced and more comprehensive analysis techniques to be implemented. And now we even need to develop more specific assays and assay designs that can accurately assess the product property as well as the different batch-to-batch variability. This can be quite a challenge, not just to the manufacturer, but also primarily to the FDA and the proper approval of the FDA of final product release from these various nanomedical products or even any generic components that might arise from them. And I think this also can carry over for the therapeutic part and on application and that we can also leave for John here to comment on this aspect. Yeah, thank you, Tamer. You always do such a nice job describing the intricacies which make approving nanomedicines really a unique challenge and bringing it back to practice. You know, pharmacists really are the medication use experts. Nanomedicines in many instances represent the future of our therapies. So as Tamer noted, you know, the manufacturing process for these is very complex and I liken it to a snowflake, you know, not too unlike a snowflake. Each nanomedicine is a little unique with the quality and composition of nanomedicines really highly dependent on sophisticated manufacturing processes. Even small differences in the process conditions lead to differences in their critical quality attributes. And those critical quality attributes are what define how they will perform clinically as well as what their safety and toxicity profile. So ultimately that manufacturing defines the particle and the particle itself defines the medicine that'll be used in the patient. So for pharmacists, we need to have a deep understanding and appreciation for how these get approved, not only how they're approved, but how they can then subsequently be interchanged between nanomedicines and then nanosimilars. And I know we'll get to nanosimilars later, but understanding the approval process and the relative therapeutic equivalency and safety must be demonstrated in a clinical setting, which also makes approval somewhat challenging. This can make interchangeability between products difficult. Pharmacists, we have a responsibility to understand these issues and base all of our decision-making for our patient based on available evidence. It's not so simple as saying, this is this ingredient, this is this ingredient, so they must be equivalent. It doesn't work like that with nano medicines, you really have to see how it's performing in a patient in a clinical setting to determine relative equivalency and then the relative safety considerations. I'm going to turn it back over to Liz. 
Okay, thank you, John. So what do you both see as the top future therapeutic agents in the pipeline in the nanomedicine space? Thank you, Liz. I think I'll start here from the very early trials and actually that started to come into the market in recent years, is starting with the DNA and gene therapy to correct certain genetic disorders and correct that by replacing parts of the cellular DNA. And that has been in clinical practice and different conditions such as cystic fibrosis and hemophilia. And there is even taking that further, we know about the mRNA therapeutics and that's starting from the COVID-19 vaccine. And John even can bring us even more additional examples over here about other mRNA therapeutics that's in the market. Yeah, thanks, Tamer. And just building on one of the examples I used earlier, there are many protein and peptide-based molecules that are now in clinical trials for a variety of different disease states, including those related to immune modulation and acute and chronic inflammatory disorders, as well as cancer. For example, a TSP1 analog and ABT510 for brain gliomas and anti-CD47 antibodies for hematologic cancers. I think the oncology space is particularly exciting. There are also a number of multifunctional nanocarriers that are coming on or at least will be going through clinical trials and see how they're going to perform in vivo in clinical settings. I think no matter what disease state or what application of nanomedicines, the use of nanomedicines in the future will continue to expand. This will also allow for an increase in targeted therapies. And I'm particularly as a patient safety person excited about targeted therapies that reduce overall toxicity, but we can be a little bit more targeted with the areas that they're treating. A medicine profile will not just be about that API, that active pharmaceutical ingredient, but will instead focus on engineered medicines that are providing maximum benefit with limited or at least reduced toxicity. I would like to add, yes, coming from the area of cancer, there is also the whole concept of personalized cancer medicines. We have a lot of anti-cancer vaccines and for that, like those for non-small cell lung cancer and colorectal cancer, parchaeotic cancer, ovarian cancer that are, are now running in clinical trials in late clinical trials and are coming into the market as well. Okay, thank you. So let's talk about nanosimilars. Are they currently available or what can we expect to see in the future? Nanosimilars in general or generic variants of nanopharmaceutical products on the market are kind of, let's call it this way, they are coming into the market. They have been just very limited components or versions in the market. For example, we have that of the doxorubicin liposomes that's been approved and going into the market. And we've seen some clinical variabilities that started to arise from this concept. And that's why we need to understand what exactly is the issues or the challenges when we're dealing with nanosimilars in general. Due to the complexity in the design and formulation and characterization and characteristics and unique properties of nanomedicines, the problem is that to get a harmonized quality approval towards nanosimilar is not very well defined. And that we've seen happening in the very limited nanosimilars that just started in the market. And due to the issues with manufacturing and the quality control and the challenges in these very complex areas, there are different manufacturing products that can actually change in their manufacturing processes. And the you do that even very fine differences in manufacturing processes or the even the design and the models of the machines that they use that can even prevent the production of similar replicas of the originator product. 
And that might not even be properly achieved because we're talking about the whole production system, not just about a simple one, two step process. For this reason, it's very important that we understand that not just having a production of a nanosimilar means that it's exactly the same, because there is a reason that even though they are looking exactly the same in terms of in vitro properties and in silico properties, their clinical properties may have a significant variation. So clinical evaluation must be carried out, not just relying on in vivo characterization and simple bioequivalence method that we use to standardize and apply in conventional products. In this case, we have to really think about, do we have at least, for example, phase four trials for instance, a phase three data for these generic products or nanosimilars compared to the benchmark of originator product, we really need to see this before a full regulatory authorization can be granted or a full replacement in our clinical practice. For example, we have the iron sucrose nanoparticles also. They have a central polynuclear mineral iron core that's actually covered or complex with sucrose. If you have a very slight difference in the metal core size, or the carbohydrate branching chemistry. And that can give you a slight differences in the nanoparticle characteristics. Those characteristics will change not just the drug stability and the biopharmaceutical profile, but they also affect the pharmacokinetics profile over the long run, especially in different populations and different like renal clearance profiles and as well as immunogenicity. So there are a lot of these intricate design and manufacturing variation that need to be clinically addressed and clinically characterized well before we start making clinical decisions about these nanosimilar alternatives. And back to you, John. Thanks, Tamer. And what you're describing there is the impact at the bedside, which ultimately is the most important consideration here. And lack of knowledge about the complexity of these nanomedicines and nanosimilars among healthcare professionals it is a little concerning because not all nano products are going to act equivalent at the bedside, even though they may have that same active pharmaceutical ingredient, just as Tamer so well described. And iron carbohydrate complexes are a perfect example. You know, the drug profile in the body of these nanomedicines is influenced by core size as well as chemistry of that shell. And so one might assume the resulting stability affects the nanoparticle distribution, bioavailability clearance, and ultimately iron release, which is the point. And this all has a direct influence on the safety of these products. And as a consequence, the maximum tolerated dose, right back to that safety conversation, which is so important. And for me as a patient safety professional, patient harm, reduced clinical efficacy, those are concerns. And those have been reported with some of those nanosimilars on the market when they haven't had this rigorous safety and efficacy check that is established through a clinical trial of the nanomedicine in the body in a clinical setting, because oftentimes there are follow-on products. And iron sucrose is a good example. Liposomal doxorubicin preparations are a good example where they may not have that same efficacy, or they may have a different safety tolerability or harm profile compared to their comparator product because they haven't gone through this additional safety and clinical quality check. And that's an important consideration for pharmacists to know. So we need to always consult that evidence. And I know Tamer would agree is we need to be basing our decisions on evidence and not just this product has this API, this product has this API, they must be equivalent. 
Okay, and then just going a little bit further along those lines, what would be the main points for consideration when including nanomedicine products in a hospital formulary? Yeah, Liz, I'll take that one. And I think that's a perfect follow-on to what I was just describing. And ultimately, pharmacists, we are the medication use experts. Nanomedicines are medicines. And so we as pharmacists need to educate ourselves and become more aware of those handling and formulary considerations with regards to nanomedicines and nanosimilars. The unique and complex nature of nanomedicines and their nanosimilars does necessitate a thorough evaluation of these products in preparation for formulary inclusion. Considerations like strict handling, storage, administration protocols are all key. Failure to adhere to these specific requirements for, say, transport or storage, for example, temperature considerations or speed of administration has the potential to have negative clinical consequences for patients. And we're going to want to avoid that as part of any formulary evaluation. That's a key patient safety role for pharmacists. So some of those specific points or considerations for formula include the specific indication that that nanomedicine is being used for. You know, what are the relative clinical targeting benefits or safety profile benefits? Those need to be completed as part of any formulary evaluation. Certainly with any formulary evaluation, cost is a major consideration. What are those inventory costs, but also thinking about it holistically. It's not just perhaps the price of that product, but also what's the overall health cost? Are you going to need multiple doses of another medicine? Are you going to have to deal with safety or harm or decreased tolerability of another medicine? That's going to increase the overall cost of providing care. So it's important not just to look at one line item versus one line item, but what's the total cost of care as part of a formulary evaluation. As part of that assessment too, knowing what additional training is needed for your pharmacist staff, your nursing staff, others, as well as requirements for IV compounding, storage considerations, dilution, etc. Many of the medicines that were being used in this space may have specific therapeutic drug monitoring requirements for nanomedicines versus conventional therapeutics, including those as part of any formulary evaluation is important. But ultimately, I think the takeaway message that I want to leave with the listeners regarding formulary evaluation is that we must, as pharmacists, whether it be this therapeutic area or another, look at holistic costs because there's this benefit to making sure that we are maximizing efficacy and minimizing or eliminating harm. And those safety considerations are absolutely paramount when we're doing any evaluation of nanomedicines or nanosimilars. So back to you, Liz. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both for providing all of your wonderful insight on the world of nanomedicines. Definitely an area that is important to pharmacy, both in the present and the future. So we thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. This was a wonderful topic and discussion. And to all of our listeners on today's podcast, if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to check out all of ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit and Forums, such as the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect Community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for joining in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes 
access show notes and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.